It is great to see you this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Glad you're here. If it's been a while since you've been with us, or if you are a guest, you should know that we are in the middle of a series on the book of James. Here at Fremont E. Free, we like to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. The reason we do that is we really do believe the Bible is the Word of God, and as much as possible, we want the Word of God to set the agenda. So this morning, that means that we are in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Father, we come before you this morning, recognizing that there are some in this room who are just weary, some who are exhausted, frustrated, confused, just feeling tired. We pray that you would use your word this morning to restore our souls, and that you'd use it to encourage us. Maybe others of us in this room come in and, and we're in a good spot, and we pray that you would use your word to continue to encourage us and to give us an attitude of gratitude that we would be thankful for all that you're doing in our life. Or perhaps this morning what we need to be is challenged by your word. And so we're praying if that's the case, then we pray that you would do that. Really, in short, what we're asking is that you would work in a mighty way through your word this morning. We pause before we preach because we know that you are the one who does the work. If anything is going to happen in this moment as we open your word, it will be because you are working. And so God, we're asking for your spirit to be at work, whether we need challenged, encouraged, convicted, Reminded of your greatness. Whatever it is, we're just praying that you would accomplish through your word this morning. We're confident that your word will achieve all that you desire and accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And so, Lord, we're praying that you would do a great work through your word in James chapter 2 this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So I've been in full-time ministry for about 17 years now. And during that time, I've been a part of many small groups, many men's discipleship groups, and many different counseling sessions. I've also sat across the table from countless guys at coffee shops or restaurants as they poured out their heart and shared their life story. In the course of all those interactions, I've heard a lot of different people confess a lot of different sins. Anger, lust, greed, jealousy, covetousness, idolatry of work or family, bitterness, unforgiveness, adultery, laziness, gossip, pride, a lying tongue, slander, lack of self-control, selfishness, addiction to pornography or alcohol or drugs, and in some cases just flat-out unbelief. But in all the interactions I've had over the last 17 years in which people have confessed their sin, I don't recall one time that a person has confessed to the sin of partiality. Now, it's possible that someone has confessed to that particular sin, and I've just forgotten about it. After all, I'm getting a little bit older, and there's no question that my memory is not what it used to be. As an example of that reality, just the other day, someone who does not attend our church came into the church office. I met him on a few different occasions. He's a very pleasant guy. My interaction with him on this particular occasion was also enjoyable. But as we're interacting, I realized about halfway through our conversation, I've completely forgotten this guy's name. Now, because I'd met him before on several occasions, I knew I should know his name. We also have several mutual acquaintances, so I had heard other people talk about him, so I knew I should know his name in that way too. But as we were talking, for the life of me, I could not think of what his name was. I started doing that thing in my head where I'm debating, is it Bob or Rob? Jerry, Larry, Tim, Tom, and the more I thought about it, the more confused I became. It didn't come to me until about 15 minutes later, after he'd already gone. The point in all that is simply to say this, my memory is not what it used to be. So it's possible that at some point, in some group or some conversation, someone confessed to me or to the group, I really struggle with the sin of partiality. It's possible, but I kind of doubt it. Because there are a lot of sins that get talked about regularly in the church, but partiality is not one of them. Partiality is one of those sins that maybe you've heard of before, especially if you've read the book of James, but it's a sin that, generally speaking, gets ignored. 
people don't write books about partiality. It's hard to find songs to sing about partiality. Partiality is not usually a topic of discussion in our accountability groups, and for most of us, it's just not on our radar. And yet, it's obvious as we come now to James chapter 2 that partiality was a concern for James. Because in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, James directly and specifically addresses the sin, and he calls it that, the sin of partiality. And he challenges us, his readers, to avoid the sin altogether and gives us ample reason as to why we should do so. And so even though the sin of partiality may not be on our radar, what I'm going to suggest in light of what we're about to read in James chapter 2 is perhaps it needs to be for the sake of our joy and for the sake of living in God's good design. That said, let's get to it a bit more of an obscure passage. James 2, 1 to 13, if you would, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We have great confidence that this is what the Lord wants us to hear this morning. So James chapter 2, the words will be on the screen. You can follow along in your own Bibles. If you have them, you can just listen as I read. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, standing as a simple way to remind ourselves this is the word of God as such as do our reverence. So James 2, starting verse 1, says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he's promised to those who love him. But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourselves, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of God, you may be seated. So I think the main point of the passage we just read is pretty clear this morning. As Christians, we are to avoid the sin of partiality. As James plainly puts it in verse 1, as those who hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, we are to show no partiality. Having said that, I think the straightforward command of verse 1 produces two important follow-up questions. One, what exactly is partiality? And two, why do we need to avoid it? And thankfully, I think the rest of the passage helps us to answer those two questions. And so in the rest of our time together this morning, that's what we're going to try and do. We're going to try to explain what is partiality and why do we need to avoid it? So having said that, let's turn our attention first to the first question, which is what exactly is partiality? Look again at the way the passage starts in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So again, in verse 1, James is clear. We're to avoid the sin of partiality. But the question is, what exactly are we talking about here? If I were to walk up to a group of random first graders and ask the question, hey, how many of you struggle with partiality? First of all, that would be weird. Second of all, I would not get a lot of traction in terms of conversation. But to be fair, if I walked up to a random group of adults and said, hey, how many of you struggle with partiality? I'm not sure how much traction I would get in that conversation either. Because the fact is that partiality is just not a word we use very much. So I think it's helpful here, before we go any further, just explain what do we mean 
when we're talking about partiality. So the Greek word, the New Testament, by and large, written in Greek. The Greek word that's translated as partiality literally means to receive the faith. The word then carries with it the connotation that we merely receive things at face value. Or to say it another way, we make judgments about people based on external appearances. Now, about half of English translations translate the word not as partiality, but as favoritism, which I think is helpful because it allows us to understand that to be partial is to show favoritism on the basis of outward appearance. And that understanding of what partiality is becomes even clearer in the illustration that James gives in verses 2 through 4. So look at the illustration James gives to help us understand what he's talking about in verses 2 to 4. Verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So as we've said before already in the book of James, James is a master of illustrations. In verses 2 to 4, he gives us an illustration to help us better understand the sin of partiality. Now, we're not sure if this particular illustration is something that James has experienced on a first-hand basis. In other words, he's seen it. Or if it's just a theoretical situation he designs to help us understand partiality. Either way, though, he paints a vivid picture for us in verses 2 to 4. He describes two men coming into an assembly of the church. Most likely here, he's talking about a worship service. One of the men comes in wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. The other man comes into the assembly wearing shabby clothing. In other words, the first man appears to have wealth and status. The other appears to be poor and unimportant. The man in the fine clothes in this illustration is welcomed and immediately ushered to the best seat, while the poor man is told to stand to the side or maybe just sit on the floor. It's clear then in the illustration that those in the service look at the outward appearance of these two men and immediately they make judgments. And those judgments then lead them to action. They assume the first man must be important and valuable since he's dressed so sharply and therefore he needs to be treated with great respect. By contrast, the second man is unimportant and less valuable since he's dressed so, fabulous, so shabbily and therefore he can be cast to the side. Now the problem, of course, with this way of thinking, and this is what James is getting at, is that in making such judgments like this in the assembly, those who are in the assembly are merely looking at outward appearances without actually knowing the heart. They're showing favoritism on the basis of outward appearance and thus committing the sin of partiality. Now to be sure, in this particular passage, James is very much concerned with the sin of partiality specifically as it relates to money and wealth. In the illustration he provides, it's apparent that the socioeconomic status or the perceived socioeconomic status of each of the two men provokes the different reactions from the assembly. And certainly, partiality based on socioeconomic status is one of the most common forms of partiality that exists. Even today, and even in the church, those who are perceived to have status and wealth are often treated differently than those that are perceived not to have status and wealth. But having said that, partiality or favoritism is not just confined to questions of wealth and money. Anytime that we're making moral judgments about a person based on external appearances, we're committing the sin of partiality. And in that way, we can display partiality in all kinds of different ways. We can make moral judgments about a person based upon the color of their skin, or the shape of their body, or the style of clothes that they wear, or the tattoos they possess, or the color of their hair, or their body odor, or disabilities that they may have, or any one 
of a number of other external factors. Now, to be clear, I don't think the issue is observing those things. The issue is making judgments about those things and then treating people differently on the basis of our observations. In the illustration provided by James, the issue is not that the assembly noticed that one of the men was dressed better than the other. The issue is that they treated the two men differently and assigned value based upon the way that they looked. And in particular, they treated them differently because one appeared to have wealth and the other did not. So when we talk about the sin of partiality, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about showing favoritism based upon how someone looks. We're talking about making moral judgments based upon how they appear outwardly and then living in light of those judgments. But having defined partiality, I think some might ask, well, is it really that big of a deal? After all, isn't it part of our human nature to look at the outward and make judgments? Isn't it normal for us to want to favor those who perhaps could benefit us the most? In the case of the illustration provided by James, wouldn't most of us treat the person who's dressed better a little bit better? After all, networking is an important part of life, right? So shouldn't we try to befriend those that might have more connections? In other words, what I'm asking is, is partiality actually a problem? For James, the answer is yes. Now, having said that, I don't think James would deny that in our sinful flesh, our human tendency is to make judgments upon others based on how they look. I think James would also concede that in our sinful human flesh, we tend to show favor to those that we think might benefit us the most. But listen, just because we have those tendencies does not mean those tendencies are good. My human tendency is to be defensive when someone confronts me on some sin of mine. But just because that's my tendency doesn't mean it's good. In fact, the New Testament makes clear there's an expectation as a follower of Christ that I would be humble and listen that I would control my defensiveness or my anger. Instead, I would respond in kindness. So listen, just because our natural human inclination is to show favoritism or to show partiality doesn't mean that we should embrace our inclinations. Actually, we need to run from it. And in the rest of the passage, James makes clear why this is the case, which brings us to the second question we want to answer this morning. Why do we need to avoid this sin of partiality? James 2, 1 to 13 I think James implicitly gives us four reasons why we should avoid this particular sin. The first reason is this. To show partiality on the basis of outward appearance contradicts the heart of God. All right? So follow with me here, verse 2 through the first part of verse 6. We're going to go through the illustration again because it connects to what comes after it. So verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes in your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, will you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. All right, it's important to follow James' logic here. In James' illustration, his sample illustration, verses 2 to 4, the assembly treats the rich man with favoritism on the basis of his apparent wealth, while at the same time treating the poor man with disregard on the basis of his perceived lack of wealth. But then in verse 5, James points out, this is the exact opposite of the way that God often works. As James puts it in verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and the heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him. In other words, what we're saying is this. We, as humans, tend to look at outward appearances. 
And we choose to associate with those who seem to have wealth, beauty, influence, power. God, on the other hand, though, rescues the poor, the weak, and the outcast. Now, in saying that, we need to be clear in saying this. James is not suggesting that rich people are incapable of knowing God. There are actually plenty of examples in both the Old and New Testament when rich people have a heart to follow God and do so. Think of people like Abraham or Job. Furthermore, James is not suggesting that all poor people will automatically enter into the kingdom of heaven. If so, the scriptural commands to help those in need would be completely counterproductive if poverty is the way that you enter the kingdom. So hear me clearly when I say this. James is not saying all poor people get to go to heaven, all rich people are lost. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is this, that God has a heart for the downcast. God has a heart for the lowly, and he often chooses to rescue the unlikely and the unexpected. By the way, this is not something unique to James. This is something we see throughout the New Testament. For example, if you want, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. All right, the words will be on the screen here shortly, so you can just listen along that way. You can just listen as I read. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul affirms what James is saying here. So I'm going to read this passage because I think it's important that you see what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1 because I think it shed lights on what, what is happening in James chapter 2. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now again, Paul is not saying here, God only rescues those from lowly positions. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he's simply pointing out is that God loves to rescue the weak. God loves to shame the wise by rescuing the weak in order that he might display his great power. And when I think about my own story, it's humbling for me to realize that I was one of the weak ones that God chose to reveal his power to. Because the fact of the matter is, that my background was not illustrious. I grew up in Sheraton, Iowa. And I love my hometown, but if a cultural elite from New York City showed up in my hometown, they would scoff at the lack of culture and the lack of sophistication. In fact, in the great state of Iowa, there's only one county without a stoplight, and it's the county I grew up in, Lucas County. On top of that, we're just kind of a lowbrow community. As an example, there's one ice cream store in town that's been there ever since I grew up. And one of the things I remember most about that ice cream store is the main lady who would make the food would always lick her fingers just like this right before she made the food. All right, so I'm just telling you, this did not pass health code. It was not a highbrow ice cream store. But I would say it was still delicious. I still love going there, and it's part of the way my hometown is. Sheraton, Iowa, hear this, is not the cultural hub of the Midwest. It's a little place and out of the way. It's a little town and an out of the way place. But it's where I grew up. On top of that, growing up, my family was very middle class. My mom stayed at home with my brother and myself. My dad had a good job. He didn't necessarily make a lot of money. He was never financially lucrative. So we were always fine financially, but we never had a ton growing up. Furthermore, in high school, I was relatively successful academically, made good grades. But believe me when I say this, the astrophysics department at MIT was not knocking on my door trying to recruit me. 
Or to say all this in summary form, I just say this. Well, I'm very thankful for my upbringing. There's nothing about my background that screams, God had to rescue this guy. Right? There's nothing about me that says, oh, he would be such an asset to the kingdom. He needs to be rescued. No, to use sports terminology, I'm a jag, just a guy. I don't bring anything spectacular to the table. But hear this, in his infinite mercy, God rescued me. He opened my eyes so that I would understand I was a great sinner and Christ was a great Savior. And I'm guessing, if you're honest, that's your story too, at least to some degree. God chooses to shame the world or to shame the wise by rescuing the weak. And in light of all that, James seems to be simply making this point, James 2. If God doesn't look at outward appearances to choose those that he will rescue, then why would we make judgments based on outward appearances ourselves? Why would we show preferential treatment to the rich, to the connected, to the beautiful, when God's heart beats for the weak and the lowly and the unlikely? One of the reasons why we need to avoid the sin of partiality is that showing partiality based on outward appearances contradicts the heart of God. But there's a second reason we need to avoid the sin of partiality. And that second reason is this. To show partiality violates the law of love. Verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So in verse 8, James references a passage in Leviticus 19. And he refers to it as the royal law. The royal law here is likely just a reference that it's a law from the king. In other words, it's God's law. And in God's law, specifically Leviticus 19, 18, God commands the Israelites to love their neighbor as themselves. Now the interesting thing about that Leviticus 19, 18 verse is that it's found in the context of a passage that talks about, you guessed it, partiality. In Leviticus 19, 15, God commands the Israelites not to be partial to the poor or to the great, but instead to righteously carry out justice. So in Leviticus 19, the idea of not showing partiality either to the poor or the rich. By the way, that's important. You can show partiality to the rich, but you could also show partiality to the poor. And Leviticus 19 is saying, don't do either. Instead, love your neighbor. James is making the same connection here. He's saying to love your neighbor is to love the poor and rich alike. It's to love the person and not make judgments based on outward appearance. Conversely, James is saying, if we show partiality and we show favor to those who look more impressive, or to those that we think might be able to help us more, or seem more influential, James would say, we are failing to love our neighbors. As Jesus makes clear in Luke 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor is not just the person who lives next door to us. Our neighbor is any person that God puts into our path. And thus, to love our neighbor is to love those that God puts in our path and not show preference on the basis of external appearances or to show partiality based on what we think someone can do for us. One of my favorite New Testament scholars is a guy named Tom Schreiner. Anything that Dr. Schreiner writes is almost always super helpful. He's just a brilliant guy. But more importantly, he seems to genuinely love Jesus. And I know this because I've met Dr. Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner was actually a professor at the seminary that I attended. Although it never worked in my schedule for me to take a class from him, I would encounter him somewhat regularly in my job at the seminary rec center. And here's what I appreciate about Dr. Schreiner. Although I was a true nobody, he didn't know my name, I didn't have many classes, I wasn't a famous student on campus, he always treated me with the utmost in kindness. And from what I've heard from other people who know him well, this is just how he is. 
whether it's the seminary president or a random person at the rec center, Dr. Schreiner was the same guy. He didn't show favoritism based on appearance or position or status or what someone could do for him. He just showed kindness to whoever God put in his path. Or to say it another way, he loved his neighbor. Listen, I don't know who God's going to put in your path this week. Maybe you'll be a rich man in fine clothing. Or maybe you'll be a poor person in shabby clothing. Maybe you'll be one of the, most, or one of the biggest movers and shakers in all of Fremont. Or maybe you'll be an unknown factory worker that can barely speak English. But whoever it is, we are called to love them and not show partiality. This is the royal law. It's the law given to us by the king of kings, to love our neighbor as ourselves. In the same way that we would not want others to judge us on outward appearance, we should do the same to them. We should love them as ourselves. So this is the second reason to avoid partiality. Partiality violates the law of love. There's a third reason. We should avoid partiality because the day of judgment's coming. Look at verses 9 to 13 here. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin, are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now admittedly, it's a little bit hard to track James' flow of thought here as he comes to the end of this passage. But as best I can tell, this is what I think James is trying to say. He's saying, if we break the law at any point, which all of us do, by the way, Romans 3, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If that's true, then we are lawbreakers. As one commentator points out, the law is like a pane of glass. Even if a brick goes through the glass at just one point, the whole pane of glass becomes worthless. So even if we don't commit adultery but do murder or vice versa, or even if we don't commit adultery or murder, but instead we lie, or whatever command you want to pick, we are lawbreakers. The pane of glass has been compromised. To break the law at one point is to be guilty of breaking all of it. Now the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus came and lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve to die. Since we're lawbreakers, we deserve death, eternal separation from God and hell. But because Jesus fulfilled the law, and paid the punishment that we were to pay, if we turn to him, if we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ, we can be rescued. Our, our punishment can be paid, and we can receive his righteousness. And thus we will be able to stand before the throne of judgment with confidence, knowing that we'll be approved on the basis of Christ's work. So even though we were lawbreakers, including in this particular area of partiality, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But what James is saying, I think, is this. While there's no condemnation, those who are under the law of liberty, that would be Christians, we will still have to give an account for how we speak and act. And thus, we'll want to show mercy because we've received mercy. In the context of James 1, I think what he's saying is this. Showing mercy, then, means avoiding partiality and favoritism. We show mercy by treating all people with kindness, regardless of status, wealth, or appearance. We treat them with the dignity of being an image bearer. To fail to live in that way is to potentially indicate, I think this is what James is saying, is to potentially indicate we don't actually understand the mercy of God ourselves. I think that's the warning he's giving in verse 13. If we show mercy, it shows that we understand God's mercy, that we've received it. And thus God's mercy will triumph over judgment because Christ paid the punishment. But if we fail to show mercy, if we fail to demonstrate that we know God's mercy, 
then there will be no mercy, but instead judgment. Now listen, I'm just going to be honest in saying this. While it's hard to track the flow of James' thought, it's also a little bit scary to try to figure out what he's saying here. Because in verses 12 and 13, James seems to be giving a very serious warning about the importance of living out our faith and the importance of showing mercy and doing so in the context of avoiding partiality. He seems to be telling us that we need to avoid partiality because if we don't, it demonstrates that we don't understand God's mercy and we will have to give an account for our actions. Now, obviously, that raises some questions. Namely, how do we rest in the finished work of Christ with full confidence while also living in light of the fact that there's a judgment coming where we have to give an account for what we say and do? I'll admit there's some tension here. And I don't necessarily want to explain away that tension this morning because I think we're meant to wrestle with the tension of what James is saying. Clearly, James wants us to live differently in light of God's coming judgment. And specifically, he wants us to avoid the sin of partiality in light of God's coming day of judgment. In fact, that's the third reason why we should avoid the sin of partiality, because God's judgment's coming. Lastly, though, we should avoid partiality because there's only one Lord of glory. I want to go back to the very beginning of the passage here. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, I think that description of Jesus in verse 1 is key to this passage. In verse 1, Jesus is described as the Lord of glory. This is a title that reminds us there is no one like him. He alone is to be praised and honored and lifted high. He's ascended in heaven. He will come again to judge, and he will do so in glory. As commentator Douglas Moo points out in reference to this passage, this reminder of Christ's glory in verse 1 is particularly meaningful in a situation in which Christians were tempted to give too much glory to human beings in the form of partiality. As James reminds his readers in verses 6 and 7, the rich aren't deserving of our glory. After all, they're the ones that are blaspheming the name of God oftentimes, and they're oftentimes the one driving persecution. In other words, what James is saying is, there's only one who is worthy of our praise, and it's not the rich, or it's not those who externally look like they have it all together. It is Jesus Christ. So stop giving glory to humans, he's saying. Instead, he's saying avoid partiality. So listen, there will always be a tendency for every person in this room to show favoritism on the basis of outward appearance. But James is pleading with us in this passage, don't do it. Avoid the sin of partiality. Which begs one more follow-up question this morning, not related to the text, but related to our response. Is partiality something you struggle with? Listen, I know partiality is something we don't talk about much, but it's pretty clear for James there's a serious issue. Serious enough that he takes 13 verses to talk about it right in the middle of his book. So my question for you this morning is simply this. Is this something you struggle with? In what ways are you tempted to judge others on the basis of external appearances? In what ways are you tempted to show favoritism on the basis of what someone might do for you? Or to use the illustration from this passage, if a man walked in here this morning who's well-dressed and put together, would you treat that person the same way as someone who walked in wearing dingy clothes with a distinct smell of body odor? Now listen, I understand there's some complexity to those questions. Even at this church, we've encountered some who look rougher because they are rougher. They've come in high or drunk, or in some cases, threatening violence. In those instances, certainly we have to respond a little bit differently, and, and rightfully so. But even still, even throwing that caveat aside, we can't let ourselves off the hook from what James is saying here. 
I suspect that for all of us, there's at least a hint of partiality and favoritism that clouds our judgments every single day. Because we're human, we tend to evaluate people based on what they look like. We tend to show favoritism to those that we think might help us most. But James is pleading with us in this passage to avoid the sin of partiality and to avoid it because it contradicts the heart of God. It violates the law of love. It fails to take into account the coming judgment and it ignores the fact that there's only one Lord of glory. So church, maybe partiality is a funny word that we rarely use in our vocabulary. But my prayer is that partiality would not just be a funny word that we rarely use, but more importantly, it'd be something we rarely exercise. But instead that we would be a church that loves our neighbor and that we realize there's only one who's worthy of our glory. And it's not those who look like they have it all together on the outside. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, let's avoid partiality. Let's do it for our joy and for the glory of the King. Let's pray. God, we thank you for a reminder here of a sin that we probably just don't think about a lot. Partiality. Lord, I'm going to be honest. Sometimes figuring out how this passage applies and what this looks like is difficult. Even this week, I've been wrestling in my own heart. What, what are the areas that I show partiality? God, I pray that you would help to reveal that to us, even this morning. That you would reveal to us, what are the areas that we are showing partiality? And that you would help us to avoid this sin. That we would be people who actually love our neighbor. That we would be people who reflect your heart. That we would remember the day of judgment is coming and so speak and so act accordingly. And that we would remember you are the only one who is worthy of glory. God, help us to live this passage out. In short, that's what I'm asking. So please, would you help us to be people who respond to this and live accordingly? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the things that we do value at this church is prayer. And on the weeks opposite Lord's Supper, that's something we do. Another thing that we, we also value is having a heart to reach the lost people. And specifically also to reach the nations with the gospel. And so what we want to do in our last five minutes here together this morning is just spend time specifically praying for the nations and praying that we would reach lost people. I came across this statistic a couple weeks ago from the Jesus Film Project. And the statistic was this, that um, 75% of the world's unreached peoples live in just 12 countries. Right? So 75% of the world's unreached peoples, that means people who have little or no access to the gospel. Right? We're talking about people who most likely will be born, They'll live and they'll die without ever hearing the name of Jesus Christ. And thus, they won't have hope of salvation. 75% of those people live in just 12 countries. If you're wondering, how many people are we talking about here? We're talking about, about 3.6 billion people who have little or no access to the gospel in these 12 countries alone. And so as a church that wants to be a church that prays, but also wants to be a church that sees and is part of God reaching the nations with the gospel, we just want to spend some time praying specifically for these countries this morning. You can read them on the screen. There's 12 of them. Again, 75% of the world's unreached people live in these 12 countries. Now, I do think there's a bit of a connection, actually,